Well, I guess first off, thanks for doing this. This is pretty cool. Uh, you're a, you're a cool guy. You're the man. You're putting out some awesome stuff, dude. Like for real. Thank you, man. And uh, yeah, I I pretty much just want to know first off how you came to this path. Like how how did this all start? Where where was your inspiration? Was there like one moment where you kind of uh, woke up and kind of saw the light and wanted to, you know, uh, put out the good word or was this more of like just a gradual process of unfolding? I could say, I could say it either way. I think, um, I grew up Christian. I grew up a pastor's kid. I was always very, um, spiritual, always very dedicated to my Christian faith and, you know, wanted to be a pastor one day and all of that. And I was 23 years old working at a pretty fundamentalist church after college. And being in that environment really uh, helped me wake up to the fallacies and contradictions of my faith that I had kind of avoided most of my life. So I left my church, left the church, left Christianity, and really was just kind of on a desperate pursuit for truth after that. Um, because I think for anyone who leaves their religion, it can be a very uh, crisis of faith type of situation where you don't know who you are anymore. You don't know what reality is anymore and uh, can lead you to some really dark nights of the soul and all of that, uh, which is all really good because it really provided me the motivation for seeking the truth. And that just led me to uh, a bunch of different paths, you know, starting out with um, you know, Alan Watts and Eckhart Tolle and kind of the, the basics you could say, and then got really into, um, you know, Advaita, Vedanta, Taoism, Buddhism, Stoicism, and then found certain texts like the law of one and of course in miracles and really just all kind of weave together to show me, um, through integrating so many paths, including my Christian faith, of course, that there is only one truth and all of these paths were really pointing to the same truths in their own unique ways. And that gave me a lot of, um, it validated what I knew in my heart was true, but didn't have words for, we could say, growing up as a Christian. Mm. So it was more of just like, a, cause what I'm curious on, like I've heard the saying before that like once a Christian, always a Christian or something, it's hard to like undoctrinize <laughs> somebody, right? Uh -huh. So yeah, what, that's sort of true, I think. So what made you kind of like, what, was there a moment that you remember you were like, wait a sec, or like, you know, like the moment when we all realized that Santa Claus isn't real. Was, was there like a moment for you where it was like, wait, hold on, this isn't really, this, there's something not right here. Yeah, there's, there was a sequence of events or moments that I could point to. And there wasn't a single particular one of them that uh, sort of did it all in one go or something, but it was a bunch of different things that I had these moments of like, wait a minute, this is a little fishy. Mm -hmm. And the straw that broke the camel's back was finally when um, basically my, my senior pastor that I was working under, um, there was a, a, a morning where there was a homeless guy on the front steps of the church. Uh, our church was in downtown San Jose. So there was always homeless people all over the place and kind of camping out around our you know, uh, facility. And I was really like a super devout uh, Christian and like Jesus follower. So I wanted to be just like Jesus and do all the things Jesus did. So when I saw a homeless person out front, I was like, I'm going to go preach the gospel of love to this guy and like cast these demons out of him and stuff. <laughs> so I, I literally like heated up my, 
I think I had a hot pocket I brought for lunch. Mm-hmm. I heated up this hot pocket. I was, and this guy, you know, he's in a sleeping bag. He's talking to himself and stuff. He's all cracked out on drugs. And I was just going to go kind of love on him, give him my, my food and see if I could talk to him about how much God loves him or whatever. And by the time I got out there to the, um, to the Fourier area, I looked out and saw uh, an ambulance had pulled up and there was, they were inside the, the Fourier and they had strapped this guy to a gurney, uh, some paramedics, and there were some cops there and stuff. And they were, this guy was like, you know, cussing up a storm. And uh, he was, he was saying like, F you church mother effers, like over and over and over. And my, my pastor was there kind of like overseeing this, you know, whole event. He had obviously called the cops and stuff. And uh, he was like, oh, swearing in the house of God, you know? Mm -hmm. And the cops were like, come on, buddy. You're going to use that language in the house of God. And it was so cringy. That Mm -hmm. moment was so like, it just triggered everything in me that I've been suppressing about how much I disagreed with this fundamentalist approach to God. And so I sort of like lost my temper. And I was like, no, no, let him say it. He's exactly right. That's what we are. And my pastor turned to me and he was like, what did you say, Aaron? And I said, I said, he's right. That's what we are. And he goes, meet me in my office. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, gladly, you know, like, let's hash this one out. Cause I knew I was going to quit at that point. So I just basically gave it to him. I told him, uh, I, I think all the stuff you preach here is bullshit. I think you're all a bunch of fake Christians. You don't really follow the gospel of Christ. You just give lip service to it. And when the rubber meets the road, when there's actually a homeless guy in front of our church, you call the cops on him and have him kicked out, you know, and probably thrown into jail or whatever, wherever they go. And I was like, this isn't uh, the gospel I want to be involved in. So I'm, you know, I'm going to put in my two weeks notice now. And uh, we had, you know, kind of a verbal dialogue battle, you could say about theology for a bit. And that was it. So I moved back to Oklahoma. And at that point, all bets were off. I didn't have any more fears about exploring other spiritual paths. If I knew one thing in the universe was true, I knew for a fact that that God didn't exist. So Mm -hmm. it was like, all right, cool. It's um, all bets are off. Let's do this thing. But that kind of led me to a bit of a closet atheist period where I was uh, afraid to acknowledge to myself that I was afraid that maybe there isn't a God at all. Maybe that everything I believed was just a bunch of bullshit that I'd made up, people had made up. And uh, so I started reading near-death experiences like obsessively to try and find some evidence that there's an afterlife and there really is a God and all this stuff. And then uh, went along the path that I described. And then it was at 27, if, if there was ever a moment that really set me on this track, it was when I was 27, I had um, uh, a pretty dramatic like awakening experience at work one day, actually. Uh, I was working at Google, uh, Google headquarters in Mountain View as a personal trainer. And um, yeah, I had this really profound awakening experience that left me in a sort of like samadhi state for two weeks. And after two weeks of being in that state, uh, the ego kind of came back online again, slowly but surely. And it came back online in the form of, I wonder if this is going to be my permanent state of consciousness. I wonder if this is forever and, uh, and then slowly but surely, the, the old personal conditioning came back in, and I sort of felt like I lost that state of enlightenment. And from that point on, it was like, all right, I have no doubts that um, liberation is possible, that that state of consciousness that's described in all these texts is real and available. So it's like, what else matters at that point once you've tasted that? 
So I sort of just walked out of my former life, um, fitness modeling, bodybuilding and all that stuff. And just all I cared about at that point was figuring out how to get back to that place again. So how's that journey going? You know, it's been really amazing, man, because um, the way I like to describe it is it's sort of as if um, if you're going to climb up a, a big mountain or something and uh, somebody, you know, snaps their finger and you're at the top of the mountain and you get like 30 seconds to survey the mountain and go, okay, there's that rock and that cliff that leads to this little path and then down that rock and then poof, you're back down at the bottom and it's like, all right, go climb the mountain. And it looks like this insurmountable task, but at least I had that one glimpse of it, you know, mm-hmm. and I can sort of back engineer it in my mind. And so I think that that, um, sometimes I call it like a little free sample of enlightenment or something, mm-hmm. um, kind of gave me the blueprint for remembering what that state was like. And I think that that did a lot for me in terms of helping me to, uh, when the rubber meets the road, when I'm in a, a really severe trigger or there's a conditioning pattern that keeps coming up that it seems hard to get rid of. I could just remember what it was like in that two week period where it it was almost like suffering was laughable to me at that point. Like I I would try to think about things that I was suffering from because I was really depressed at the time in a really dark place. And it was like everything I would think about that was making me suffer so bad. I would just laugh at it was hilarious. It all seemed so fake. Mm. Um, and, and for who, for what, who's sad about that? I don't, I couldn't remember anymore. Um, so I could sort of return to that and remind myself that there's a place in me that's totally free and doesn't know anything about these stories and this person and all these attachments. It's not interested in those things. And it was, it's really just been a journey of falling in love with that place of inner silence and, and abiding there and refusing to give that territory up to the ego, even Mm. when conditioning does come online as it always does just letting it happen without taking credit for it because I know now who I really am at my core and I can't any longer betray myself by equating myself with the ego. Mm -hmm. Do you think that feeling is like a sense of hope and salvation? Like, is that the true salvation that Jesus talks about? Like that Samadhi state that you've kind of touched upon? Oh man, you want to talk about how the words of Christ came alive to me after that experience, it was like, I'd never read the red letters before. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was so obvious that Christ was in that state and was speaking from that state and had to speak about that state in these parables and these metaphors and stuff, because if he had just come right out with it, you know, immediately off with his head, he wouldn't have lasted two weeks, you know, in first century Israel. So he used these sort of Trojan horses of these parables to disguise his truths in, which would allow those people listening who were even close to understanding his words would be able to absorb those truths. And so, of course, you know, dogmatic religion totally doesn't understand anything Christ really said because they're, they believe they're the ego, they're this body, this person. So they believe Jesus was speaking as a person, as an ego, as a body. So they pedestalize him and say, oh, he was talking, you know, he was, he was the one only God who came down from heaven. Uh, so we should worship him and pedestalize him. And all of us are worms and sinners when it's really hilarious because Jesus really couldn't have been more clear about his message, which is I and the father are one. There's no separation uh, as I and the father are one. So you and the father are one. And of course, that's what ultimately got him killed. But uh, 
Jesus was always my sort of guru as a Christian kid growing up. So it was a really beautiful transformation to all of a sudden see, oh, this is why this person was so uh, mesmerizing and inspiring and captivating to me my whole life because he really did have the words of truth. And even though my mind didn't understand it as a kid growing up, my heart obviously did because I was so drawn to this person. And then all of a sudden I saw in him what was in me through that experience. And that's when Christ really came alive. Mm-hmm. That's when you got it. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting because it seems like it's a code in a way. It's some kind of code where you, where you have to like decipher the code in order to relate to the mysticism that's behind the words, right? Yeah, it's... um. Non-duality is really impossible for the intellectual mind to grasp because the intellectual mind is obviously in duality. So we use, we use different methods of pointing to the non-dual reality like Christ did with parables. And uh, until you experience non-dual reality, none of those teachings or pointers will really make sense to you. And that's why I think it's so important to just have that singular desire for freedom uh, to experience God within yourself, um, that mystical approach to the divine, where it's like, look, God, I don't know anything of myself. I can do nothing. I'll never understand this if it's left up to me. All I know is I want you with all of my heart. I want truth. I want to know who you are, who I am. Please show me. And it's like, it's that state of humility. And uh, Christ would call it um, meekness or brokenheartedness. Uh, that's the state or the vibration to be in to have those kind of realizations. Mm-hmm. Is it like a, so it's a state pretty much of unbearable suffering in a way. And you, you it kind of reach a point where the suffering is like almost too much to bear, um, too much to just be with. And then, so there's no other choice than to turn to uh, the truth, you know, turn to the father, son, and the Holy spirit. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah, it's that's that's exactly it. It's the journey of suffering that leads us to that grace. Um, suffering is, it's like the the oyster, like the pearl or that grain of sand in the oyster shell. That it it's the friction, the tension, the pain, the uncomfortableness that just keeps refining and refining us until eventually we turn into that pearl. And that's why there's no point to ever judge anyone for what they do. Um, because they're, if someone's behaving in an unconscious manner, that's just where they are. They haven't suffered enough to see through the facade of their identity as this person. Um, they're, you know, we're all, we're all lost in this dream world. We were born into this dream world through these bodies. Um, there is no dream world without a body and there is no body without the dream world. The two are one. So th- this body is also a part of the dream. And the only thing that wakes us up from the dream is suffering. Uh, as long as the dream is going pretty well, nobody questions it. Why would you, right? Everything seems to be mostly in order, some suffering here and there, but whatever. And slowly that dream just keeps devolving into a nightmare as it's supposed to, as it's designed to do. And eventually the nightmare gets so bad that it liberates the soul from the shackles of the person. And we say, I'm willing to give everything up. Just tell me what I need to give up. 
I'll give up my desires. I'll give up the pleasures of the world. I'll give up this body. I'll give up my identity. Whatever you want from me, God, just set me free from this torment. That's the state that brings realization. And the ironic thing is when you get to that state and you're willing to lay down everything at the altar, even yourself, uh, you find that nothing real is actually lost. Um, the loss of ego is really just the gaining of, of universal consciousness of realizing, oh, I wasn't that wave. I was always the ocean. I'd just been limiting myself and my perception. So it's, it's exactly what Jesus said again. It's, it's uh, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life will find it. That's the yin and yang. Yeah. The polarity of this existence. It's interesting that it's like once you get to a point of unbearable suffering, you get to a point where you realize that like, oh, there was actually nobody here to actually suffer. Yeah. It's like an illusion that we get so far lost in the mirage and in the illusion. And then at the end point is realizing it wasn't even like, how do I put this? It's just like, it's a, it's a messenger it, itself. Like suffering is the messenger for us to get out of our own suffering. But the, but once you realize and get out of it per se, or reach that other side per se, you realize that suffering wasn't even real. If that makes sense, you know, it wasn't even like actually like nobody actually truly suffers like there actually is no suffering if you're in that state you realize that suffering is all just for us it doesn't happen to us it's just something that is literally happening so that we can continually reside in that christ consciousness right like is that the goal would you say to continually be in that state is that an enlightened being like a fully enlightened being to to like if i were to wake up tomorrow morning and then from when I get up to when I go to sleep, reside in Christ consciousness. Is that, would you say, like a goal? I don't even know if goal is the right word, but you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the Buddha defined enlightenment as simply the end of suffering. Mm -hmm. That was his definition. And so, you know, we might say that suffering happens, but nobody suffers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. The, the way I would... Um, conceptualize that maybe I have a video on my channel called the sufferer doesn't exist. That's about this idea, uh, which is explaining the fact that the sufferer, the suffering and the, the reason or the story that causes the suffering are actually all one occurrence, right? It's one experience that can't be divided. The mind, the analytical mind divides and says, okay, there's a story. And then that story is creating some suffering and that suffering is happening to me, the person. So it, it splits it off, right? The dualistic mind. But we can just investigate it and find out through our own direct experience that it's not true. If you, if you remove any one of those three ingredients, all three disappear. None mm. of them can exist without the other. So take out the story. Okay, there's no suffering now without a story. And then who's suffering if there's no suffering, right? Nobody. Uh, if you remove the sufferer, same thing. If you remove the suffering, same thing. They're all interconnected, right? So suffering is an experience in consciousness that happens when consciousness, consciousness gets hypnotized or maybe spellbound into believing I am this body, I am this person. It's on behalf of that mistaken belief or mistaken identity that creates that experience of suffering. And even to look at that in a deeper way, 
what suffering really is, is um, almost like, I like to use the analogy of like bumpers on a bowling lane. It's like that, um, that guard that prevents consciousness from drifting too far away from its essential nature. Like it can't get too equated with form because it just suffers so terribly, it turns around eventually. If that mechanism of suffering wasn't there, consciousness might just get lost in the universe and identify with every form in the universe over and over and never remember, oh, I am consciousness. I am infinite. I'm none of these objects are me, right? They're all appearances in me. Consciousness wouldn't even know that without suffering. So suffering is that grace point really that forces consciousness eventually to turn around and go the other direction back to the seeker, right? To the away from the world of objects and towards the subject. And that's the journey of self-realization, which again, everyone's at a different stage of that. Some people, the majority of people, let's be honest, haven't even made that about face yet to go back inwards. They're still looking out to the world of objects to find fulfillment, uh, which inevitably leads to suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. So why do you think we suffer so much like over lifetimes, like, you know what I mean? Like not even just in this lifetime, if you believe in previous incarnations, there was so much over the, the span of human history, like just, just so much, man, just, just like, just so much, just like, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> what, what is it about? Like what interests me, right? This is why, like, I'm, I keep asking. It's like that one point where we just say, I can't take it anymore. Because I've, I've, if I had previous incarnations, I've probably suffered a lot more than I did in this lifetime. So is it that I still needed to learn lessons? Like there was something about those previous lifetimes where I might have been starving or like I got in a car accident, whatever it was, whatever the suffering was, obviously I did. But there was something about this lifetime where I kind of had that same <clears throat> samadhi experience that you had, right? I like to say, once you open the door, you don't, you always know what's on the other side, even if you close it. It's that, it's that, why do you think it happens? Like, what is that one point of opening the door? Where, where is that catalyst lie, would you say? Because it's different for everybody. That's why I like to talk to people. I think some people have like psychedelic experiences. Some people, it happens at work. Some people, maybe Kundalini yoga might be, uh, you know, some tragic loss, but there usually is some kind of catalyst or maybe like multiple catalysts that lead up to that opening the door so what do you think leads to that catalyst is like it's like a what is that turning point would you say yeah it's very different for every soul because the creator is really having different experiences of self-realization um, the whole universe exists for that reason so some souls uh, learn these lessons much quicker and they are on the fast track through their journey of evolution. Other souls take a long time and they just beat their head against that wall much longer before they wake up and realize who they are. And I liken it to um, sort of like the way we enjoy food. Sometimes we want to just absolutely scarf down a delicious meal without even barely taking a breath between bites. And that's fun. And that's an enjoyable way to eat. We don't want to always eat that way. Sometimes it's nice to just take slow bites of that steak and just savor every bite, you know, sip of red wine, make it a slow, enjoyable process, right? And the interesting thing about waking up 
is that when you truly do wake up to who you are, like you said, when you realize you're not that dream character, all of the suffering that happened to the dream character is now totally inconsequential to you. Like it loses its meaning. Uh, you, you never obviously never suffer from it again. And really you just see it as, um, as grace, the voice of truth that was trying to wake you up and you were just a little too thick headed to hear that voice and it took you a while, but it doesn't mean anything anymore because there's no person for it to mean anything to you just become freedom. And so in that way, my journey, man, like since that two week period, I went right back into suffering very heavily, but with a, a twist now where again, I knew it wasn't true. I knew this is an illusion, but boy, is it a powerful illusion, man? <laughs> like this is really kicking my ass, right? Yeah. And that just birthed such a desperate desire for truth. And I mean, I was just, again, my whole life was abandoned to this. So I was, I would go on hikes. Uh, I I'd had to do so many things to try and escape my mind. Um, and I had so many beautiful, like countless moments of beauty in that transition between um, still feeling a bit trapped as the person, but knowing liberation is possible and is my true nature and just crying out for it and just being met by grace over and over again. Um, I can't even put it into words, just indescribable beauty. And I'm so grateful for that because, you know, there's people like Eckhart, Tolle, Byron Katie, uh, Ramana Maharshi, and countless others around the world we maybe aren't aware of who have these kind of like one shot awakenings that are really profound. And they're just like, poof, the person's gone. They're totally enlightened and the person never comes back. And that's a great experience too. And everyone's kind of jealous of that. But I wouldn't trade that for what I had. I really wouldn't. Um, it was like a maybe a two-year period where there was still a lot of suffering. And it was interspersed with these moments of, again, just divine, indescribable beauty. And uh, it was like, you know, the slow, taking the slow bite to the steak and enjoying it. And again, now I look back and I could care less about all the moments of suffering in between. And I'm just so grateful for how grace met me in those moments of my, in my lowest points where I cried out, God was always there, never, ever abandoned me. Mm -hmm. I was only ever separate from God because I abandoned God in my thinking. And I believed I was something else. So this, you know, the third density world, we could say, it feels like all that there is like, Oh, what, why would the universe do this? This is the nature of the universe to come to this planet and suffer. But it's really hard for us to get out of this framework and widen our lens a bit and realize that actually this third density experience that consciousness has of suffering and, you know, the tug of war between the two polarities is really just a really infinitesimally small amount of time in the grand scheme of your soul's evolution. Like 99% of your soul's journey of evolution is without suffering. And you just happen to be in that 1% period where consciousness is letting you choose which polarity you want, positive or negative. And the moment you choose the positive polarity, your suffering's over for the next, you know, how many billions of years your soul continues to evolve and other worlds, other galaxies and extra, you know, terrestrial civilizations, who knows what awaits us, right? It's just a tiny moment in time. And if you can remember that and bring yourself back to that, the suffering we experience here really doesn't have that much gravity. Mm. Only when we think we're isolated to this and this is all that there is, 
we get into that or the ego gets into that doom and gloom mindset. Mm -hmm. So we're here to discern and make a choice kind of, and it's this, so this life in this incarnation is pretty much about our intentions. And if we choose to be of service to others, that is the positive path. And then thus we grow into the higher densities. Yes. Yeah. This is, um, you know, the law of one's teaching on how the soul evolves that, uh, the third density of consciousness is the density where consciousness becomes self-aware, um, which is a conceptual understanding of me as a object in time and space separate from my environment that's called self-awareness. So I can now think about myself as an object. Um, once consciousness reaches that phase, there's a very short, apparently a very short, intense period of that self-aware consciousness battling between the positive and negative polarity. And the universe wants each and every soul to have the free will to experience both polarities equally and make the choice, which one do I prefer? Do I prefer service to others or love? Or do I prefer service to self or fear-based, uh, separation-based existence? Either one's valid from the universe's point of view. And once we choose that polarity, then yes, we continue our evolutionary tract up that polarity. And uh, I can't speak for the negative path, um, but for the positive path, what Ra explains in the law of one is that there is no more suffering. It's just this third density experience, which Ra calls the choosing, the choosing between those two polarities. Mm -hmm. So this instance of time is for essentially for God to wake up to its own being and realize what it is. And then from there, love itself. Is this kind of like an unveiling of love? Like this density is kind of like realizing what love really is in a way. Yeah. In order to graduate to the next density of consciousness, apparently you have to learn the, the basic lessons of that next density in this one. So oh, okay. before you can escape third density, if you want to go to the fourth density of consciousness, which is love and oneness and unity, you have to learn the lessons of love and oneness in third density and basically select that and say, yes, that's the experience I want to have in consciousness now. And Ross says, you must be at least 51% oriented towards love and oneness to be eligible for graduation. And for the negative path, you have to be 95% oriented to service to self to be eligible for uh, fourth density negative. So in that six to 50% margin is where the vast majority of people lie. And it's very easy to just remain in that spectrum. Um, it sounds like it's much harder to choose the negative path than the positive. And in a way it is, but Ra explains that it's actually just as difficult to become 51% service to others oriented as it is to be 95% service to self oriented for the simple fact that we, because we have these egos programmed into the human body and the human mind that are designed to keep us self-absorbed. Mm. So if I just kind of follow that natural instinct, that could lead me to a 95% orientation. I have to go through a lot of suffering and pain and be really committed to that, but I can do it. Or I have to really go beyond my ego and transcend it and be service to others oriented at least more than half of the time. 
And both are actually equally difficult to do. And then from that point on, as Ra explains, the service to others path is much easier to evolve and polarize on than the service to self path is. Mm. When, when I hear you iterate stuff on the law of one, I, it makes me think that this game, this life, is that? That's not me. <laughs> you have a ghost in there or what? I think it's my neighbor. We're just going to ignore that. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, when, when I get on the, like when you get on the topic of the law of one, it seems like life is like a game or like some kind of test. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you, it's not even like a pass or fail thing. It's just like a test for what direction your soul wants to go into. Um, and it seems like the game is against us and we have to learn how to play it in a way. Right. It's like, we have to learn the rules and through, through like whatever it is, yoga, meditation, reading people like Ramana Maharshi or, you know, whatever our practice is, that's how we get better at it. Right. Is that kind of how you would uh, sum it up? Yeah. You can very much look at it like a game. I think there's a passage where Ra does liken it to a game. Um, I know there's one passage where he talks about it like a poker game. Oh yeah. Um, he might, I think there might be a passage where he talks about it like a chess game as well, but yeah, it's like, we're here to learn the rules of the game. It, it's really like the most psychedelic game that could ever be played because nobody explains the game or the rules to you, yeah. but it's very apparent that there are rules when you show up. So it's like, um, what are those things called? Um, escape rooms. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like that, right? It's like, you're left to your own devices to figure out what the rules of the game are. And really there's no rules, but if you want to be on the positive path, there's certain parameters you have to stay within and same with the negative path. So it's really about what you want, right? You don't want to play a game that you don't want to play, that the rules aren't interesting to you. So if you're service to self-oriented, you're going to find the service to others rule set to be very off-putting and, and not enjoyable for you and vice versa. So there really is no right or wrong. It's just about whichever version of the game you want to play. Do you want to be the hero or the villain, right? Either mm-hmm. one is up to you. Mm-hmm. Now, when we graduate to the next density, is this after we die or could this be also in the body that we're currently residing in? Graduation is the term that the soul goes through after its incarnation, but you can very much um, ascend to fourth density consciousness now in this lifetime. Absolutely. How would I recognize that? Well, you would recognize it simply by the fact that you would not suffer anymore. Um, You would feel and become loving towards all beings. Your perception of the universe would very much be one. Um, You wouldn't, you would no longer be defining yourself inwardly as this person. You would have that abiding awareness that I am the whole universe just experiencing this person right now. And I'm also experiencing all these other people in other bodies. It's all me here. There's only one being that's fourth density perception. So when that is your perception, obviously you'll know because you'll be there and the absence of suffering will also be sort of the barometer for that, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like I have that. <laughs> it doesn't seem too unattainable, to be honest. It seems actually pretty no, realistic. No, not at all. The 51%, you know, it's not like it's some, yeah, it's not like some insurmountable task or something, but it's, it's, it's a never ending spectrum. It's just a spectrum. So you can go as far up that spectrum as you want. 
And a lot of people also confuse the, um, the, the map for the territory. They confuse the concept for the reality. So like they might hear these things taught and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the one, I get it. But when somebody cuts them off, they still, you know, get angry, flip them off. Uh, when they don't get what they want, they still are upset. Um, they get lonely when they're not in a relationship or whatever. Um, those are the signs that you maybe haven't actually integrated that state of consciousness like you think you have. So you have to look to your experience alone and be really honest with yourself uh, if you really are in that state or not, if you really are integrating that fourth density consciousness, uh, because life doesn't lie. Experience won't lie to you. You can lie to yourself by collecting a bunch of knowledge, which people love to do. And that's great. And it can really point you in the right direction. But doing the real work is where this stuff happens. Like when the rubber meets the road, when that old voice comes back up, when you feel jealous, uh, when you get insecure, all of these normal things that happen to all of us every day, you have to begin meeting those things with a new attitude. You have to question those things and look at them with a new type of awareness. Go, hmm, maybe that's not my jealousy. Maybe that's not my anger. Maybe that anger is arising on behalf of a, of a mistaken identity. It's that sort of self-inquiry Ramana Maharshi talks about. To me, those are the practices that integrate, that, that expand consciousness the fastest. So most people, and this is kind of the ego's belief, believe that by collecting more knowledge and information, I will become enlightened. So people get on this you know, feverish quest to watch as many videos, read as many books, listen to as many teachers. And they have a, you know, they'll show you their library of books they have at their house. I read three books a week, you know? And again, it's like nothing wrong with that, but just don't confuse that for the reality because it won't lead you there. Yeah, exactly. It's a direct experience thing, right? You have to, yeah. like those, I feel like once you have that direct experience, all of those words, podcasts, whatever it is, things that are pointing you in the direction are just kind of like aids to kind of like, like the, the bumpers, like you said, um, when you're bowling, it's kind of just stuff to like keep you in line. But I think once you have that, that taste, you kind of don't lose the taste. Like there's just something, at least for me, I'm, I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, now that I know that there is salvation, now that I know that there like truly is like, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye than being in this meat suit. There's really nothing that could ever tell me that it's not true. There's nobody that could ever say that this isn't true. There's nothing that I could ever go through that would lead me into the way of going back to my old ways of, you know, egoistic thinking in the world against me. And I'm a separate person. There's really, there's nothing that could tell me, you know, but, but the things like you just mentioned, keep me in line. They, they, it's like a reminder. Cause like, I, I guess, you know, you got me thinking now, cause I'm not perfect. There's still things that arise in my life where, you know, I'm not a saint <laughs> and this thing, this times where I get mad or, you know, just unwanted feelings, but it's good to know that there's like, there is light at the end of the tunnel and these things and, you know, work such as yours show me the light that it's always there, you know, cause the, once you catch a glimpse, there's really, there's no, like I said, you just don't forget. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a passage where Ra says, um, they ask Ra, what are, what are some practices we can do to open the green ray heart chakra and ascend to fourth density. And the first practice Ra gives them, he says, uh, exercise one, the moment contains love. 
and basically it's up to you to find it. And mm. that's really what fourth density is all about. It's about becoming love. You don't, you know, you don't do love or practice love. It's really about embodying it to such a degree that like you said, you can't ever go back again. Mm-hmm. Like um, what's the analogy I would use? Uh, the sun doesn't try to shine or something like it, it the sun is shining. It's what yeah, it, it is. Just shines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everybody wants to read the books, you know, go to the yoga retreats and all that stuff. And that's fine. But like, it really comes down to like, can you forgive that person? Can you not put that person out of your heart when they betray you or abandon you or whatever? Can you see the light of God in them and see only that light? Like, can you not equate them with the person that they think they are? Because this is very much A Course in Miracles teachings, but if you can see the Christ light in them, if you can see God in them, you must have first seen it in yourself. Mm. Other people become our greatest mirrors to our state of consciousness because the way I'm engaging with the world will, again, show me the absolute undeniable truth. So it's really like you don't even need books or teachers or YouTube videos or any of that because life is the supreme guru. And if you know how to listen to life and hear its voice and follow its instructions, you will find that every single day you really feel like you're in enlightenment university. You know, every experience that you have is like the teachers before you giving you the the test and you're taking the test. You no longer see it as like, why is this happening to me? Boo hoo, poor me. You're like, oh, wow. Look at this new opportunity life just gave me to expand even more. Mm -hmm. And that's where the fast track to growth is. You can't read enough books, watch enough lectures to come anywhere close to the kind of acceleration that your life is providing you every day. Mm-hmm. So when you really want to grow more than anything else, you start taking life by the reins and you take every opportunity you can get to expand. Mm-hmm. It's like a shifting of perception, right? hundred percent. That's awesome. So I want to, um, touch upon your uh, series, the, the mystical Jesus, which I think is absolutely amazing. Uh, so Jesus was pretty much, it's, it's like we said before, he wasn't saying that he was only the son of God. The, the only way that he could really describe it was using the terminology of that time. And over the years, it's been kind of misconstrued where people think that the words he's saying are that he was just him was the son of God when he was really just trying to portray like, no, I am, but so are you. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like that that's a message that's been spoken about, not just from Jesus, you know, that's, that's been spoken about from a lot of ascended masters. It's just interesting to me that we have this, um, very, very large cult surrounding the man and surrounding him as in he is the one he is the messiah um so it it seems so jesus was pretty much like a yogi right yeah um there's there's some different interesting channeled works about jesus um the urantia um papers talk about jesus's life um Ra talks about jesus's life and says that i think at 13 um he had learned basically as much as he could learn of his Jewish tradition. And he left his homeland, left his father's land, I think he says, to learn from other teachers and then returned again at 25 years old. 
and took up his father's occupation of being a carpenter and continued to learn and integrate uh, whatever new teachers, maybe Buddhism, Hinduism, who knows, uh, with his Judaistic faith. And um, eventually, at, you know, 30 years old, began his own teaching and ministry. So he had obviously been ruminating over how do I share these non-dual um, ideas with these people that are completely trapped in duality. And, you know, he, there's, once you understand Eastern philosophy or non-duality, you read Christ and it's just obvious as day that he was a total non-dual master. He was just speaking to Jewish people who believed in a monotheistic God. So he was trying to put it in their language a bit, but I mean, he, he really pulled no punches. He was very straight up with it. And there's passages like, I mean, even when he said like, if any man wants to be my disciple, he must first die to himself. Okay. Right there. That takes Jesus speaking as a person or an ego out of the equation, because there's no way he would have, you know, asked his own followers to do something that he wasn't willing to do or hadn't done yet. If he hadn't died to himself, he wouldn't be requiring other people to do it either. And to die to yourself, you know, no Christian understands what that means. Like um, killing the just, ego. Yeah, exactly. It's die to who you think you are. This concept of self you're carrying around, that's the obstacle to all my teachings that will, you will not understand what I'm pointing to if you keep that thing inside of you. So first get rid of that thing, then you can be my disciple. And, you know, this is a hard teaching master who can accept it. He's like, well, guess what? Unless you eat my flesh and eat my blood, you have no life in you. He just kept upping the ante because at some point, the sort of the lunacy of it being literal has to be realized, right? He can't possibly being, be literal right now when he says this. So what does he really mean? And once the mind can eliminate literalism as the option, then it's forced to think outside the box. And that's the only chance that a dualistic person has at understanding Christ's teachings. So to me, he was just kind of like he said in that one parable, just throwing seeds out and whatever soil, whatever person was ready to hear it would absorb the seed and would grow into a beautiful flower. And those who weren't ready just weren't ready. And he just went around casting out seeds. Mm. So when he, when he referred to the father, son, and the Holy spirit, the father is pretty much like Brahman, right? Infinite consciousness, yeah. this whole thing. Uh, the son is Atman that resides in all of us. So what is the Holy spirit? How we act from that realization? Like, is that, is it that loving selfless spirit? Compassion? A course in miracles defines the Holy spirit as the correction principle. So the way I sort of see it is like um, the father dreams the universe uh, and sort of falls asleep to itself and appears as this dream character, um, Brahman becoming Atman, as you said. So father becoming the son and the father still retains its true nature as a portion of its consciousness is in the dream world. And so to give itself this experience of self-realization the father speaks to its dream self, its son, and slowly wakes it up from the dream it's in and reminds it who it is. And to me, it's that voice of the father that's speaking into the dream world is what we call Holy Spirit. 
But upon waking from that dream, we realize, oh, there's no son or Holy Spirit or father. There's just one mm-hmm. having a seeming experience of otherness. And so uh, it's, it's the same to me as Sat Chit Ananda in the Hindu tradition, uh, being consciousness bliss, being is the father, uh, consciousness is the son. And in the Course of Miracles, the Christ literally is consciousness is what it refers to. And it's like to know for the son to know the father for consciousness to know being is bliss bliss mm-hmm. is holy spirit or peace and that peace that that inner bliss we have when we contact our true nature becomes the barometer for our correction because when we suffer we go this isn't right something's out of alignment here and we return back to that place of peace that we so deeply long for so the peace calls us home and to me that peace or that bliss represents holy spirit which is always that barometer for truth. Mm. Yeah, that makes so much more sense than the literal interpretation of the <laughs> Bible, man. It really does. We had no idea how to explain that as Christians. Uh, three gods in one person is what we'd say. <laughs> it's like, don't think about it too much. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy that like the whole world is still under that spell of the literal words. You know, it's, it's how many billions of, of Catholics are there out there? It's just... It's kind of like scary to me, but I mean, they'll wake up, I guess, someday, eventually they'll kind of, they'll get it. Hopefully. Yeah. You know, I just look at it like they're sort of in first, second grade <laughs> and uh, you can't expect them to pass an algebra exam in second grade. You know, in second grade, they need to A, B, C, that's where they are, you know? So yeah. religion is actually serving them because they're still in a very infantile state of consciousness, right? So universe is giving them exactly what they need to continue their evolution. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very true. It's a good way to look at it. So was Jesus a fourth dimensional being or fifth? Yeah. Ross says Jesus was a late fourth density being who um, kind of like a bodhisattva, the idea of a bodhisattva who is a, a soul that returns back to the world, even though they've attained enlightenment so that they can give their enlightenment to the world and share with others and help wake other people up. He kind of explains that that's what Christ was. Uh, instead of continuing on to fifth density, which he was eligible for, he wanted to go back to uh, third density to essentially be a huge catalyst for change in the world and bring about this radical um, alteration in consciousness, which, Hey, he did a pretty good job. I'd say, um, <laughs> Apparently he knew he was going to be a martyr. Uh, His incarnate soul knew I'm going to be martyred for what I'm going to do, but this is what I want. I want to be of service in this way. And there's a really interesting um, passage in the law of one where Ra talks about how a fifth density is the density of wisdom. So a fifth density soul doesn't spend very much time uh, traveling to the universe, to other planets and civilizations to be of service and all that stuff like fourth density does. They actually spend a lot of time in isolation and they do a lot of work in consciousness and raising their vibration. Apparently uh, fifth density wisdom is to realize that actually the greatest act of service I can bring is to raise my vibration as much as possible, which affects the whole planetary vibration. Mm. So from fifth density wisdom's perspective, uh, the, the propensity for martyrdom and self-sacrifice of fourth density love 
is seen as kind of like folly or foolishness only in the sense of like, that's not really the best way to be of service, but on the same token, it's still seen as, wow, what an amazingly beautiful act of love. Like, look at what, look at love go. It's just given itself. It's nailing itself to that cross for the whole world. Like, wow, love is so perfect, but there's a higher way of maybe utilizing love, but that's okay because this being is really demonstrating in such a profound way, um, the nature of love, which is to give itself. And that's what Christ did by giving himself for his message and for his followers to really bring that catalyst to this very, you know, heavy, dense, third density world he was in uh, to really help wake people up and accelerate the expansion of consciousness, which at that time was in a very stagnant place. And he accomplished that mission with flying colors. And then they ask Ra, um, where's this, where's this entity now? And Ross says he is currently learning the ways of fifth density. So there you go. So it seems like to me, fourth density, putting it very simply, Jesus Christ figure, fifth density is like a Buddha figure, like a monk yes. in a way. And what is the six? Is it the balancing between the two? Yeah. Um, maybe like Ramana Maharshi <laughs> would be um, like a good sixth density example. Hmm. But yeah, it's about the unity and balance between both polarities. So the sixth density, um, really social memory complex at that point, a whole, it's a whole planetary civilization that has come to be one mind. Um, a sixth density complex uh, does travel the universe and be of service like Ra, who is sixth density, but in a, in a very different way than fourth density. Um, fourth density is still kind of learning how to serve the right way. So they tend to be a lot more involved and um, maybe overstep their boundaries a little bit, make some mistakes here and there. Um, accidentally infringe on free will a bit in the process. It's part of fourth density learning to learn how to be of service in the most accurate way. Because again, that's the wisdom density. And for fourth density to graduate to fifth density, they have to learn the ways of wisdom. And they learn the ways of wisdom by applying love through service and having that catalyst to go, oh, you know, my intentions were pure, but I really wasn't the best way I could have been of service to that entity. So let me rethink that next time. And slowly the consciousness is expanding to a fifth density vibration. Mm. It's interesting to think about that the reincarnation of Jesus Christ right now is just simply meditating in a cave somewhere or something, you know? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> so where do you where does the credibility of the law of one lie in you? You know, like is it just like does, do the truths just resonate or is there something that like what in you tells you that that stuff is true? It's a hard question to answer. If you have any real um, background in metaphysics or spirituality, I think you can read the raw material and just kind of go, wow, there's, this is some really profound material. And in the context of the way that the law of one describes the universe, it makes everything makes perfect sense. Like it really answers all the questions we have about like, why does this happen? Why does that happen? Um, in such a profound way that it's, it's kind of dumbfounding to be honest. And I think that that's what gives it such credibility. It's like, we can't, um, we can't slap fourth density consciousness on a scale and, and dissect it with a knife or something, but we can't do that with gravity either. doesn't mean gravity's not real. We have to look at the evidence we have in reality 
for these um, phenomenons, we could say. So, you know, when I drop an object, it falls. So I know something like gravity must exist. We don't know what gravity is, but we know it exists. In the same way, when we look at the densities that, that the law of one lays out, the way it describes first density, so, okay, we can look at reality and go, yep, that definitely exists. The fourth, um, the four elements, earth, water, fire, air, that's the first density of consciousness. Second density is anything with growth or movement. So microbial life, plants, insects, and animals. And okay, that's for sure a real phenomenon. Like when I'm interacting with my dog, we're very clearly in two different states of consciousness. And so the law of one just says, actually, you're just in two different densities of consciousness. So the density represents the speed of the photon, how fast it's able to vibrate. And the more it vibrates, the more density of light is in that, you know, cubic centimeter or whatever you want to define it as. And the more, the more density of light is in any particular space, the more information is in that space because light is information. The more information is in that space, the more uh, capacity consciousness has to express itself. And so that like, it really solves like every problem that science has, like the hard problem of consciousness. It's, it's sort of silly when you look at it that way. It's like, it's actually very obvious it's not that matter has consciousness, but it's the reverse. And suddenly it makes sense. So it's like, if, if something keeps answering questions, you know, like Jesus said, you know, a tree by its fruit, there's good reason to believe that it's probably a good tree. There's probably some validity to it. And so all the way up through third density of the density of self-awareness, we can see in our direct experience that we know that those three densities exist. And so to theorize that there's a fourth density which is this density of, of unity, this vision of oneness, we're all connected. Um, there's many humans already in that density of consciousness. They don't have a concept of being a body or a person. And so you can experience that for yourself. Like, okay, the, four, the first four densities I can experience are true. So is it that much of a stretch to believe the rest of them? At that point, it's really not. And everything the law of one lays out to me is sort of like that. It's like, we see the evidence of, of the philosophies that's laying out in reality and the questions we have that we don't have answers to. The law of one gives answers to those questions that make you go, wow, how did we not see this? Even with like ETs and aliens, right? We have the, the Fermi paradox. If, if, uh, if the universe is full of life, then why don't we see aliens? They should be buzzing around the skies left and right like Star Wars. It's like, well, okay. That might just be us projecting our state of consciousness onto extraterrestrials. Just because we don't see aliens zipping around like Star Wars doesn't mean that aliens don't exist. Maybe we should just rethink how it works. And of course, we do have um, a tremendous amount of UFO sightings, um, especially at this period of history. It's like almost, almost everyone's just normal now. It's like, yeah, there's a UFO. We see them all the time. <laughs> yeah they're slowly kind of integrating us, acclimating us to their presence. But the law of one says the reason that we're not landing on the white house and teaching you how gravity works is because there's a positive and a negative polarity in the universe. The positive path is all about honoring free will. So in the same way that when we observe animals in the wild, we don't go sprinting into a herd of zebras with binoculars and taking pictures and disturbing their environment. We stay far away so they can't see us and we observe them with our instruments. 
so we can see them in their natural habitat because we honor them, right? It's like, what if there's higher intelligence beings doing that to us? Well, that solves the Fermi paradox. So all the way through the text, the law of one just gives these marvelous answers that it's hard to imagine that a 24-year-old girl laying on a couch could just make that up on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're all recorded, right? There's everything has an audio recording yeah. associated with it, which is, yeah, that just seems like way too far-fetched to be fake. If it is, good job on them because it's, it was, it's a piece of amazing work if it is. Well, that's the other thing, right? Is that this, if you could somehow come up with this unbelievable uh, picture of the universe that just makes everyone gasp with wonder, uh, why would you not monetize it? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah they give true. it out for free. They just post it online. They follow the law of one all the way through. They say, hey, we didn't make this up. This was given to us. We're just the stewards of it. Here you go, world, all for free. PDFs, uh, you know, everything out for the public. You would think somebody with a selfish motive would try to make some money off this at least, you know? Mm -hmm. Are those people still alive? Jim McCarty is. I'd like to talk to him. Yeah, uh, I I've actually had him on my channel two different times for interviews. Oh, okay. Um, I got to so, listen to that. Yeah, so he is definitely open to interviews for sure. That's he's, awesome. He's man. amazing to talk to. Was he, he wasn't the channel though, right? No, Jim McCarty was the scribe. So he was the guy um, writing down everything that was being said or typing, I guess, um, at the time. And then Don Elkins was the questioner and Carla was the channel. Hmm. Imagine being almost like chosen for this. It seems like a very divine stroke of fate to be in this trinity, to literally be a messenger of God, you could say, right? It just seems so like, if, if I was in that position, I'd be like, well, why me? Like, why is this happening to me? Were these like, do you know the backstory behind? Like, were they just like kind of regular people, or did they go in this with the intention of, of transmission? Like, what's the backstory on the law of one? Yeah, it's really amazing. Actually, they were. Um, Don Elkins was the original founder of the group, who had a, a group of like a dozen people that were practicing channeling for, I think, the better part of a decade, maybe a, maybe a full decade. Um, because they were, they were somehow privy to the fact that they, they began as UFO researchers because the UFO phenomenon was really big back then. And they slowly figured out that if we want to understand these extraterrestrials, we really shouldn't be so concerned with their science as we should be with their philosophy. Mm. And really, they're a lot more concerned with philosophy than they are with science. Uh, their science is just a means for them to disseminate their philosophy. So they somehow understood that these extraterrestrials don't use verbal language. They communicate telepathically through thought and through consciousness. And so we can communicate with them uh, through the art of channeling. So they were doing these group experiments and they were very much scientific in their approach where Don would have all 12 of them uh, induce into a trance state, try to channel, and then they would all be separate and then they would come together and, and write and you know share what they got in their sessions to see if there's any commonalities and stuff. And they had some success and they had some channeling come through. But it wasn't until Carla, who was um, dating one of the guys in the group, she just kind of came to, to watch or something. And she ended up really loving um, the environment and what they were doing. And she was like, I want to learn how to channel. So she started practicing and had a lot of passion for it. And she ended up being like becoming the best channeler they had. 
And she had um, the raw contact one day. And Jim told this story on my podcast interview with him. He was coming back from the grocery store and he kind of barged in the door. And Don was like, Jim, he's like, we got something. And he's like, oh, and he puts the groceries down and kind of tiptoes in the room. And he hears Carla uh, channeling an entity. And he's like, we got something. So the three of them then decided to do a dedicated channeling uh, session with this raw um, entity who was coming through. And uh, they set up these really strict parameters. And when they made contact with raw, raw helped them set up the parameters of like, here's the best way to do this. And they said, you know, we're only going to speak to you in the question and answer format. We're not here to like preach our gospel to you or start a religion or something. Um, we're just here to be of service and we don't want to infringe on your free will. So you ask us questions. And if it's not an infringement on your free will, we'll answer you. And so thus we have the, the raw contact. Wow. That's so far up. There's more than meets the eye going on, man. It's like, there's so much that we just don't know about this life. And if that stuff is possible, it's just like, what are we doing? Like everybody's aperture is this big, you know, like we don't really know. We, we see the world as this big when it's really like, there's this much going on. And it seems like to me, we have these psychic powers that we have to get to tap into. It's just, we really don't know what it means to be a human being. Like we really don't like, we know, like I said, this much. But there's like, we might have these powers to communicate with beings of other densities. Like, that's just like, what? We don't learn that in school, man. Like, that's it's crazy. <laughs> we definitely don't. But the thing about it is we're not like, we have to open ourselves to the possibilities. We mm-hmm. have to stop being so arrogant to think we know everything. Um, like the, the reductionist, rationalist, skeptical approach um, that science, a lot of scientists take where... If, if, if you can't just show it to me in the palm of your hand, it doesn't exist. It's like, well, guess what? They will always honor that. If that's the, the attitude we have towards anything, the ETs literally, they can't communicate with us because that'd be a violation of our free will and they would depolarize themselves. They would lose polarity. And, and on the service to others path, it's a win-win when it's done right. So they, they're very eager to communicate with us and they want to be of service. Um, they're truly beings of pure love and they see us as them. They see us as their own brothers who are stuck on this little planet earth that are just suffering so terribly and confused and lost. And they so badly want to help us out, but they also have to honor our free will and they have to wait for us to acknowledge them and say, hey, we want contact with you. And then they'll be more than happy to help us eradicate disease on our planet, famine, every world issue you can think of, but they're waiting for us. So it's like, yeah, we got to get our thumbs out of our butts and, mm. and figure out where we are in this vast universe. Mm. Like e- even the fact, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear, whether it's like Neil deGrasse Tyson or somebody on Joe Rogan's podcast, where they're like, you think we're alone in the universe? I'm just like, oh, it's so cringy. It's so embarrassing. We ask that. And even when they go, you know, I don't think we're alone. It's like, even that's an embarrassing answer. It's like, it should be so stunningly obvious we're not alone. The question is, why aren't we receiving contact? Because we're not alone. Must be because we're not at the state yet where we're ready for that. Like these entities know if they gave us any kind of technology they have, I mean, we're still going to war with each other now with this primitive ape technology we have. Like, imagine if we knew how to use gravity, 
You don't think <laughs> Russia, China, the US would be going to war with each other for supreme dominance over planet Earth? You bet your bottom dollar they would. So duh, these beings aren't going to help us out and give us technology. But any person truthfully who reaches out to them, whether it's like Stephen Greer's CE5 Meditations, I don't know if you've heard of that before, but uh, there's some documentaries on um, Netflix, Unacknowledged. Um, I think that's on Netflix. Yeah. On Prime, there's uh, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind where Stephen Greer explains how they communicate with these ETs. And these people go out to the desert and I actually have a good friend of mine who works, uh, he works for Gaia here in Colorado as a video editor. And he's twice, he's gone out to the desert to do these CE5 meditations where you basically just get into a meditative state where you drop out of the thinking mind and you get into that field of consciousness where you can communicate with them and you just send them love and send them light and say, welcome, please. Uh, I would love to communicate with you. I welcome you to this planet. And these UFOs start showing up in the sky. And it's just incredible the amount of footage that people have had um, from doing these events. And even in channeling, like people that learn how to channel, they find there's always an entity ready to communicate with them. Uh, it's just a matter of them finding entities who are reaching out to them first so that they're not violating free will in doing so. I see. So it's like if they were to, you know, if we were to bring a, and a gray alien on the, on the today show that would kind of screw <laughs> up the matrix in a way there would just be like this. It just wouldn't work. Like we just wouldn't, we're not ready. Essentially. Is that it? Dude, total pandemonium world religions collapsing overnight, uh, mm. wars, you name it. Like it would destabilize our planet if they did something like that. Yeah. There's so many unconscious people still on planet earth that couldn't handle that kind of a recognition. I mean, they, they believe they're this person. There's just this one world. Um, there's probably nobody else out there. It's all about me. Everything revolves around me. And imagine breaking out of that tiny little eggshell and realizing you're just a speck on a speck in an infinite ocean of specks. I mean, that's going to cause a lot of mental panic in people, right? Yeah. So they are acclimating us to their presence very slowly with these uh, unbelievable UFO sightings we're having lately. I mean, military pilots, um, even our own government has come out and said the UFO phenomenon's real. Um, and in September, the Pentagon came out, um, you know, sort of slyly under the table while the COVID pandemic's happening. They're like, hey, by the way, we have a UFO. <laughs> you hear that? Yeah. Nobody like, talked about a, it, really. Nobody talked about it. It's like, <laughs> I mean, even when you have something like the Phoenix Lights, okay, 1997, there was a craft that was described as a mile wide triangular formation that appeared over Phoenix for, I don't know, like 20 or 30 minutes that tens of thousands of people saw, you know, every branch of government saw it showed up on radar. They dispatched jets, helicopters, military to go check it out. Um, all kinds of footage. I mean, a straight up movie level UFO encounter. And then this craft, you know, silently not making a single noise hovering over the city and then just disappears out of sight reappears over Tucson or something floats over there for a while disappears. And then these ETs are like, Hey guys, we're here just letting you know. And the next day they're like, well, uh, back to business as usual. <laughs> like it didn't change anything because it just, it's a testament to how unconscious we still are. We don't yeah. really want to believe that we're not alone. Mm. Wow. What do you think it's going to take? Just, we just slowly, gradually just have to come to, the realization like each individual has to kind of know that we're not this body 
is that kind of why we're going through this process you think right now it's just like a the slow metamorphosis of um of uh deconditioning and then from there the, these beings know that we're kind of going through that process but we, we're not we're not collectively there yet but once we are that's when these beings that seem like from what we're describing they seem like guardian angels in a way 100%. are they so they they know that they until we're at that point they can't really come and help us right yeah you know i have a hunch that if we did end up on the brink of extinction whether that's through war or some biological disease or weapon i think that they would step in to help us mm -hmm. rather than just watching us be annihilated you know i've heard that before i think uh sorry to interrupt i've heard that like i don't know if it was the law of one but some one time that i guess there was something where they there was one country was going to launch some nuclear uh weapon and then the launch codes uh decided they they oh like, yeah malfunctioned at like a weird point and i guess the story was that like these extraterrestrials came in and messed with the launch code so the, the weapon couldn't launch or something like that um, do you know anything about that oh yeah yeah the the ets that we see uh seem to be very concerned with our uh, weapons of mass destruction and you know there's a number of reports of um it really has happened many many times where fighter pilots on routine, you know, uh, patrol missions or whatever, test flights, they find these UFOs and they shoot at them. And uh, these extraterrestrials show such a Gandhian level of pacifism towards us. They just sort of disappear out of sight or they just leave. They, there's never been a single event that proves any kind of hostility from an unidentified flying object. And there's been a number of occasions that you're talking about where we have tried to launch our nuclear warheads into outer space to test them. And uh, they've either been all of a sudden the computer system gets like taken over and they can't figure out what's going on. And then everything gets defragged and they can't launch the rocket. And there's actually one um, event that happened that uh, I think it's on the unacknowledged documentary. They interview the um, military like generals who are overseeing all this. And they said they launched the rocket and a UFO appears in the sky on the right side of it, shoots a beam of light into it, disappears, reappears above it, shoots a beam of light down onto it, disappears, reappears on the left, shoots a beam of light, reappears at the bottom, shoots a beam of light up, uh, up inside of it, and then just zips off into hyperspace. And the warhead just crashes down to the surface and doesn't detonate or explode, just falls back down to earth uh, and is neutralized. And he said, um, his commanding officer looked at him and said, what the hell was that? And he, he looks back at him and says, I think that was a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's so, yeah. so much going on. Man. This is declassified from the military. This isn't like, oh, some guy said this once happened. This is fully like open mm -hmm. information that the military has disclosed already. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. That's what's funny to me is it's, it's all out there. Like there is literally... It's all so there. much information out there that is from official sources and nobody's really cares about it. We're just like, like you said right now, it's just like, Oh, it's just another UFO sighting. It's whatever. Yeah. But you know, what's good is that it's becoming normal now. Like you don't really hear true UFO skeptics anymore. There's still some around like here and there, but the, even the vast majority of like scientists will acknowledge that the UFO phenomenon exists it's now more of a question of like, well, what do you think they are? Mm. And they'll say, well, they might be us from the future 
they kind of use everything but aliens as an option. They'll say like mm-hmm. maybe they're um, interdimensional bleeding from other dimensions is what we're seeing. Um, maybe they're uh, AI robots from the future or whatever coming back to observe humankind before their inception, whatever, right? But nobody really says, oh, there's no UFOs. Yeah. So that's really good because as long as the the farther along the collective consciousness can come to acknowledging them, the more they're going to keep showing us their presence more and more often, which is what's happening now, the more it becomes accepted as normal, the more free they are to continue on that vein. And even things like crop circles, right? I really think that some of these crop circles we see that literally just materialize in a matter of hours, like a, a farmer's out in his, his cornfield comes back in the afternoon. There's this enormous sacred geometry shape impressed into his, his crop with perfect mathematical symmetry that we don't have the technology to do that even today. And they go, Oh, must be a bunch of hoaxers. <laughs> like the, the mind still can't grasp anything outside of its paradigm, mm-hmm. but it's really amazing. Isn't it? To think how, how would an intelligent, benevolent, loving species make us aware of their presence? They would probably do something like planting a sacred geometric shape somewhere that would show, Hey, we're intelligent. Uh, you guys can't do this. So it's not you that did it. Um, there you go. We're out. You know, <laughs> it's like they're messing with us, you know, well, I, I don't think they're messing with us. I think that they're just acclimating us to their presence in ways that are undeniable. And I also think this is just my theory. I mean, if you look at some of these crop circles, they are marvelous to look at. They're incredible. And sacred geometry is really just math. And math is the universal language of the universe. And everything can be explained in mathematics. And sacred geometry is really just really like formulas in geometric form or shape. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of these crop circles that appear with these mesmerizing formations, they're probably like imprinting the cure for cancer um, the theory of gravity, like, you know what I mean? They're probably giving us information. I think that these crop circles definitely mean something. Um, but we're just not at the level of intelligence to decipher what that meaning is yet. They're just messages you're saying. I think that there it's, it's a message in and of itself, right? Like, Hey, we're here and you can't deny we're here, but we don't obviously don't have bad intentions. Otherwise we could, you know, game set match overnight if we wanted to, but we're definitely here. You can't deny we're here. So we must be peaceful, right? It's kind of their way of sending that message without, again, appearing on the front lawn of the White House and showing up on CNN or something. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that. Yeah. So these are, uh, I touched upon it before, you, they, they're like guardian angels, would you say? 100%. Yeah. Do you think that like these stories that are in, you know, in, in books of people seeing these apparitions and seeing these beings are of just, see, we're seeing the same beings and essentially today when we see a ufo it's kind of like the same on the same line yeah i think that what we have called angels for thousands of years in religious traditions are extraterrestrials the law of one describes that as these beings continue evolving um and and the density of light continues to get more and more dense that the body that souls inhabit are more and more just a light body And so the vast majority of extraterrestrial encounters that get reported are always these beings of light. And that's what's described as in the Bible, you know, the angel of the Lord showed up 
in front of the tomb and it shone with such a radiant light that it was blinding, you know, that's a classic ET encounter. And so what is an ancient world going to, what else are they going to do with that kind of an experience, right? They're going to have to make it into some kind of religious thing, but there is no like, like we always think of angels as like, oh, they're um, some other thing. They're not like us, you know, they're in some other dimension of God's universe and they're like his man servants or something. It's like, nope, they're really just beings like us in a future state of evolution. They are us. They are us. Yeah. Hmm. So these beings don't even probably don't even see themselves as separate beings. Like we say aliens, but there's really only one alien, right? <laughs> there's a passage in the law of one. That's super funny where, uh, Don is asking Rob about close encounters of the third kind or the fourth kind or whatever. And, um, Ross says something like, we are appreciating the humorous aspect of your query for all is the one creator. So is therefore not every encounter very, very close. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Like there's some good alien humor. <laughs> alien humor. <laughs> That's great. Oh man. There's, this life is a mystery, man. That's why, it, that's what's awesome. That's why I love having these conversations and going down these rabbit holes because it just, it further elucidates the mystery of life to me. It, it, I just, and it, to me, that just makes me want to live more and just want to like, yeah, and just, just be happy. Is that true? I don't know why, but it's just that because when you, when, when you keep your, the aperture that I like to say, like here, just life just seems dull and dense, but like, it's cool to explore all these other ideas. I, I just think people are afraid, you know, which is understandable, obviously, because, you know, it's, it's kind of like to have these very grand ideas and have aliens that are constantly watching us and, and, you know, just interdimensional beings. It's kind of like a really far out idea for somebody that really um, doesn't explore their own being. So it's understandable, but I think it's something we all have to do. Like we all just have to kind of go down these crazy rabbit holes and see for ourselves that life is this giant, crazy conundrum mystery that we all find ourselves in. And that's kind of the point. Like we're, we're here to kind of, uh, figure out the mystery in a way we're here to kind of peel the layers back of the mystery of what it means to be a human being you know mm-hmm. yeah it's it's, it's it's great man it, conversations like this make me be really happy to be alive and really just happy to be here and have this conversation with you man this was pretty cool Aaron. this is awesome um couldn't have said it better man totally agree yeah i i mean i don't really have anything else to ask you i think we had a really really great conversation you have anything else you'd like to get off your chest before we wrap this up? No, I mean, we could probably talk for hours. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I think we can too. This was awesome. Um, you're always welcome on, back on. I could, like I said, like you said, we could definitely talk for hours. This was cool, man. Yeah, we'll have to do it again, man. We'll talk about some more alien stuff. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Always down. Uh, yeah, but uh, other than that, thank you again. Eternally grateful. Aaron, keep doing your thing. You're one of the good ones. Uh, you're a cool guy. Uh, yeah, let's let's keep spreading the vibes, man. This is this was cool. Thank you, brother. It's it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I'd be happy to do it again. We'll make it happen. Awesome. All right, I'll be in touch. Cool. Other cool. than that, peace out, man. Take care, man. <laughs>